Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software, like Jira, Confluence, and Trello, help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. No matter if you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software keeps everyone connected and moving together as one towards shared company goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for this episode comes from user testing. Reading minds is hard. Good news is you don't have to. Remove the guesswork by including direct customer feedback using user testing at each stage of the product development process. Companies need to move quickly to build experiences that meet changing customer expectations, all while minimizing risk and costly rework. With user testing, you can get rapid feedback from your target audiences so that you can make higher confidence decisions earlier and faster. Design, develop, deliver, and optimize products and experiences with confidence and less risk. Start your free test today at usertesting.com slash vox. Benjamin Netanyahu is Israel's prime minister, and after Tuesday's election, he will almost definitely continue to be Israel's prime minister. We're recording this at 9 a.m. Eastern on Thursday, and the results aren't fully official yet, but he does appear to have been elected to a fifth term. But to get this win, Netanyahu made a dangerous promise about the West Bank. It's one he might actually keep. Today in Worldly, from the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to talk about why the results of this election have us so worried. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. Hello. So, a lot of big news today, but we really wanted to drill down on the Israeli election because we think that the results are not only significant in the short term, but potentially could be like really long, big history important. So, Alex, why don't you just walk us through uh, the sort of basics of the election to start with? Yeah, we'll keep this very 101. There was an election which really came down to two parties of the many in Israel. One is the Likud party led by Benjamin Netanyahu, which is to the right, and the other one is the Blue and White party led by uh, former General Benny Gantz, which is more centrist. And hanging over this entire election was that Netanyahu may be soon indicted for corruption. We'll get into that down the line. And so because of that— there was this belief that the election would be quite close. And it was. It was really, really, really close. The reason we're saying that Netanyahu won is two reasons. One, his opponent, Benny Gantz, conceded. And then two, it looks like he'll be able to form a coalition to govern Israel. Because things were so close between Benny Gantz, this centrist leader of this new party, and Netanyahu, who, again, has been in power for a long time— Netanyahu came out just a few days before Election Day and made a pretty extraordinary promise on the campaign trail. He basically said, hey, look, if I'm reelected, I'm going to think about annexing Jewish settlements in the West Bank. That's a really fucking big deal. Right. And the reason that he did this politically 
is that Israel's electoral system is very fragmented and you needed to get the right to turn out in larger numbers. He needed to really rally his hardcore base supporters to his party and not to potentially competing far-right parties or even thinking about defecting to the center, right? So this is a political move designed to appeal to his base. But it's disastrous to follow through on. To understand why that would be such a big deal, the two-state solution between Israel and the Palestinians is built on this assumption that Palestinians will one day have their own sovereign country on their own land. But Jewish Israelis keep building settlements on that land in the West Bank. And Benjamin Netanyahu's government has not really done anything to stop that. By the way, when you say settlements, it makes me think of, like, the Oregon Trail. Like, it's it's not like they're going horse and buggy out to this place. Like, there are, there are homes, there are apartment complexes. Like, this is where suburban areas, like, this is where people live. I've been to these settlements, right? And they're, they're communities. They look like a house in mainstream Israel, depending on the settlement, of course. So just to picture these settlements, right, there are some that are very close to Israel proper. But there are a lot of others that aren't, that are dispersed completely throughout the entire West Bank. And that's a problem if you are going to one day build a sovereign, contiguous Palestinian state on that land. Because as of right now, all of these Jewish settlements that are interspersed throughout essentially make the West Bank look like Swiss cheese. So that's why the issue of annexing these would be such a problem. By annexing, that would essentially make them official parts of Israel proper. So if these settlements were to become like sovereign chunks of Israel, Palestinians wouldn't be able to have a country because there would be these little pockets of Israel interspersed all the way throughout. Yeah, imagine there being a border between, let's say, Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., that you had to go through an immense series of checkpoints and maybe not even would be permitted to go and have to drive around through some other thing and imagine what that would do to the economy of the area and the ability of it to function as, as a coherent whole. And that's why Palestinians say these settlements destroy their ability to have a country. Our resident traffic warrior, Jen, would probably hate that even more than her current commute. Absolutely. So with all that context, that's what makes Netanyahu's comment that he would annex the settlements in the West Bank so controversial, right? And it's been a, a long-going debate and, and worry in Israel for quite some time. Now, why would Netanyahu feel confident enough to say such a thing? Well, this is where the U.S. somewhat comes in. The Trump administration has been willing to do things that the Israeli right has wanted for a long time. For example, moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing Israeli sovereign control over the Golan Heights. So this kind of move, if I'm Netanyahu, I think I could probably do it. Because the Trump administration back in D.C. would go, fine, fine with us. Uh, we see no problem with this whatsoever. And it's also red meat for the base, right? Just I don't want to gloss over that point. Right. So it, it's not – the U.S. is the enabling factor here in the sense that previous administrations would have punished Netanyahu severely for this kind of behavior. But the longer-term situation, the thing that, that really led to this promise that Jen's alluding to is a rightward drift in Israeli politics that's been going on for pretty much 20 years now since roughly – the failure of the peace process at the, you know, roughly the year 2000. And that and, and um, some ensuing violence afterwards, the Second Intifada, uh, rockets being fired from Gaza and Hamas's takeover there, have turned Israelis solidly against the idea that you can make peace with the Palestinians, that you can trust them to control their own territory and not use it as a launching pad for violence against them. The result has been the decimation of Israel's left-wing peace camp and the rise of a 
country that is essentially a competition between the center and the far right. And so in that political environment, annexation becomes not only a dream of the settlement movement, but but actually something that the prime minister of Israel is saying he will do. A lot of pro-settlement, a lot of more religious parties are really big on annexing these settlements for the reason that we're laying out that it would essentially kill the two-state solution. It would end all pretenses that the Palestinians will someday have an actual state next to Israel. Now, to play devil's advocate, I mean, politicians say stuff like crazy stuff like this to feed the base all the time. So is it possible that all of our worry here is for nothing? Yeah, but there are some reasons to believe this might not just be an idle promise. And, and we'll talk about those after the break. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for this episode comes from user testing. Reading minds is hard. Good news is you don't have to. Remove the guesswork by including direct customer feedback using user testing at each stage of the product development process. Companies need to move quickly to build experiences that meet changing customer expectations, all while minimizing risk and costly rework. With user testing, you can get rapid feedback from your target audiences so that you can make higher confidence decisions earlier and faster. Design, develop, deliver, and optimize products and experiences with confidence and less risk. Start your free test today at usertesting.com slash vox. Welcome back, everybody. As we mentioned a little bit before the break, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has a big corruption problem on his hands, and it actually does connect to the sort of scary noises he's making about the West Bank. But first, we should talk about this corruption thing, right? It, we've, we've discussed on a previous episode, but it's actually a bit complex. Just a quick reminder what's going on here. Benjamin Netanyahu is facing looming possibility of being indicted on corruption charges, in particular bribery, fraud, and some other charges. What he's accused of having done is spending a bunch of money uh, illegally on parties, on his family, in ways that aren't, you know, necessarily legal. But much more troubling, he's also accused of having used the powers of the state, his own powers as prime minister, to basically grant favors to big, powerful media moguls, people who own really influential newspapers in Israel, in exchange for positive coverage of himself and his administration, which is hella corrupt. Yeah, that sounds so, bad. So he's been under investigation for this for, for months and months. The attorney general finally was like, all right, 
I plan to indict him soon. So the thing about Benjamin Netanyahu is, like most people, he really does not want to go to jail. What? Yeah, I know. Very surprising, right? So Netanyahu has been arguing that the campaign itself was a referendum on whether or not he should, in fact, have to go to jail, given that the Israeli public knew that these charges were coming down, uh, that, you know, if they voted for him to be in office anyway, they voted in him and allied parties, so he'll get a fifth term. Well, that seems like maybe the attorney general should back off. It would be undemocratic and nullifying the results of the election if he were to prosecute Netanyahu. As a result, Netanyahu now is saying that he is a free pass to introduce legislation that would protect him from being prosecuted. Just while in office, just to be clear. So it would essentially be deferring any indictment. Yeah, this I'm going to be go on a limb and say this sounds not super democratic and cool. People in his coalition, the, the likely coalition he'll form, think this, like me, is gross. And they see the blood in the water, right? And they see a possibly vulnerable leader who they could maybe replace down the line. And that's where the settlements annexation comes back in. So Netanyahu, again, really wants to pass this immunity legislation. And again, a lot of his coalition partners are like, eh, why should we? So he might essentially make a trade, right? And say, hey, you, you know, farther right parties who are probably going to end up being in my coalition, what if I were to annex some of those settlements we talked about? And in return— you guys could sign off on this immunity deal thing that I've got going through with this legislation. It's actually, it's it's even crasser, right, than that sounds, right? Because these far-right parties may not necessarily oppose this legislation on principle. They just recognize that the major parties need these smaller party supports to pass legislation, that Netanyahu wants this I-don't-go-to-jail law more than anything on the planet, which means they can extort uh, really, really significant concessions right, like settlement annexation. Yeah, and they, they know how to play their role in the system. And so it's very possible that the price that they're going to ask for, for support for Netanyahu's government and for his immunity legislation, is West Bank annexation. Remember earlier in the first half of the show, we talked about how some of these settlements are really close to Israel and some are, like, really spread out? There's a possibility that— he could kind of split the difference and say, look, I'm going to annex these ones that are really close to Israel, which would still be really significant and would be a big dramatic move that would piss off a lot of people. But it's not nearly as dramatic because a lot of people, even in the international community, kind of essentially assumed that, yeah, one day those will probably end up being part of Israel. It's less dramatic and traumatic than annexing all these other settlements that are, again, deep into the West Bank that would actually produce that kind of Swiss cheese country that we talked about. So he could split the difference and do that. But they could drive a hard bargain, right? They could say, no, seriously, if you want us to play ball, you have to annex all of this. And that would essentially be the death of the two-state solution. Yeah, you don't make a fantasy baseball trade with this kind, with this lack of leverage, and you definitely don't make consequential decisions like this with this lack of leverage. Right. Um, this would be incredibly disruptive. And I want to make sure we're not being just too theoretical here. We're talking about Palestinians who live on this land and are currently under the security control of Israel. They don't have anywhere to live that is a sovereign state of their own. They are stateless people, right? And they are under the control of Israel. If there's ever going to be a solution to this conflict, if these people are ever going to have the freedom and independence that they legally rightfully deserve, in my opinion— this can't happen, is what I'm trying to say. And so if this annexation happens, we could see a lot of 
anger, and then potential violence, right? But, I mean, we're talking something that could be an explosive situation that would basically upend the kind of current order of the peace process as we've defined it for decades. It's hard to overstate how much of a break annexation would be with the approach that Israel is supposed to be taking, with the internationally recognized approach. It's essentially saying, screw the two-state solution in the way that we've been describing. Who cares about Palestinians? Who cares about the fact that they're suffering? We want this land. It's going to be ours now. And it sets up this truly awful choice, right? A a really terrible future for the two peoples that are set here. One of them, uh, from the Israeli point of view, would be particularly bad. That would be the end of Israel as a Jewish state because you give the Palestinians the right to vote and make them citizens. They would not, since they're mostly Arab Muslims, they would not want to live under a Jewish state. And... Israel's purpose from the point of view of its Jewish citizens would it would it would cease to exist. It would be the end of Israel from that point of view. Now, the other scenario is that the Palestinians who are currently permanently occupied by Israel don't get to vote and they don't get equal political rights and they stay non-citizens. That is basically the dictionary definition of apartheid. That's why we're saying this election is so consequential. It's not just the corruption issue and the future of Benjamin Netanyahu and whether he gets to not be in jail for a while. It's also literally the future of tens of thousands and millions of Israelis and Palestinians and what this future is going to look like for decades and generations to come. It's a, it's a great reminder that election rhetoric is not costless. Right. right. Like you can and say— elections matter. Yeah, and elections matter. Like you can say this kind of stuff to appeal to your base, but— it's a promise he made. Yes, maybe it was to stay in power, but now it's, it could potentially affect thousands and thousands of people in royal and already, you know, roiling situation. Like, r- regardless of where you are, it's very easy to dismiss political rhetoric, extremist political rhetoric, in, in a sense, as just kind of like, oh, red meat and just throw and throwaway lines. But it can genuinely have impacts like that. Yeah, I, I don't want to leave you all. We don't want to leave you all with too grim a picture here, right? This is not a guarantee. It, even though Netanyahu said he wants to annex, and even though it could make some political sense to do so, it's not clear that he would be able to pass an annexation bill. It's not clear that the more centrist parties in his coalition would support it, and it's not clear that they would support the immunity bill under any circumstances, no matter what he offers them. It's so, also theoretically possible the U.S. could actually stand up and push back. Maybe, right? Maybe. right. <laughs> who, who knows with Trump? I, I'm shorting that one. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the point is, like, it's not inevitable that we get to this awful scenario as a result of this election, but it's it's possible. Annexation is more possible than it has been ever in the past now as a result of this election. And that really should scare you. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, for all the hard work she does putting together these episodes every week. Uh, I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review our podcast wherever you get it. And a quick plug for our sister podcast today. Explain they did a great episode on the Golan Heights that I recommend you listen to. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. 
Reading minds is hard. Good news is you don't have to. Remove the guesswork by including direct customer feedback using user testing at each stage of the product development process. Companies need to move quickly to build experiences that meet changing customer expectations, all while minimizing risk and costly rework. With user testing, you can get rapid feedback from your target audiences so that you can make higher confidence decisions earlier and faster. Design, develop, deliver, and optimize products and experiences with confidence and less risk. Start your free test today at usertesting.com slash vox.